The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. To have mercy on us, to stoop down and intervene in our hearts and mercifully turn them towards you. I was reading in the beginning of Mark this morning points about you coming to baptize with the Spirit, calling people to repent and to believe in the Gospel. Pray, Father, that you would, because of Christ, Pour out in a fresh and full way the power of your Spirit on us this morning. I thank you that he lives in each one of us who is a believer, but I pray that you would commission him to have particularly vibrant, moving, and power on us. To shake us to repent and believe in the gospel. to rest in you and enjoy you. God, do that in us. Use the passage that's before us. I, I think I know what I'm going to talk about, but you steer the words and you move the listener. And so you speak, please. We want to hear from you. You speak and communicate to us And each person who sits here, boys and girls, men and women, believers and non-believers, would you speak to each person your word to them? Call us each to turn towards you and to believe. Shape a people here that's pleasing to you, Lord, I pray. Give me the right words to say. Help us to concentrate and listen. And move so that we would believe. Where we look to you, our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you. You are the God who made the church. You are the God who builds the church. You are the God who owns the church. So have your way in it this morning, I pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, for your glory and for the good of us, your church. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Judges chapter 8. As we continue our brief look at this, at this book of Judges, you'll recall from last week that we're actually going to spend five particular Sundays in this book as we kind of move towards our extended study of the books of First and Second Samuel. And that's appropriate given that the story of Samuel begins in the period of the Judges with the issues that are raised in this book of Judges, the issues of anarchy and sin among the people of God. And that whole bucket of anarchy and sin was introduced last week as we considered Judges chapter 2 and the downward spiral of life among the people of God. That, that is kind of the pattern for the whole book. It starts right after their initial conquest of Canaan. Joshua led the people in. They, they crossed over the River Jordan. And during his life, essentially a positive story. They, the people spread out and conquer most of the land. But then J- Joshua and that generation died. And starting in about 
let's say 1325 B.C., give or take a little bit, a several hundred year period begins which sees a pattern of the people doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember that phrase from chapter 2. And the great evil that the people did was turning away from God and turning to trust and worship the idols of the land, particularly the god Baal. So they abandon the Lord, which is great evil in God's sight, and they suffer then as God afflicts them in anger. Before then, in mercy, he raises up a judge to deliver them. And then with things fixed, the people turn away from him again, and even worse than the time before, and so the cycle goes down and down and down. That was set up last week, chapter 2. As we move towards our text for today, we see this cycle throughout the whole book. Chapter 3, verse 7. The people do what is evil and forget the Lord to serve the Baals, it says. And after trouble, God raises up the judge, Othniel, and deliverance. And then verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years, that is, a whole generation. Same thing with Ehud, chapter 3, verse 30. And then the land had rest for 80 years, two generations. And Deborah and Barak... Till chapter 5, verse 31, the land had rest for 40 years, another whole generation. But, chapter 6, verse 1, what do you know? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so he gave them into the hand of Midian, and they were in trouble. They cry out to him, and the God of patient mercy. This is, it's remarkable if you think about it. I just, I breeze through those chapters. That is centuries of history, centuries of people playing at following God. And in mercy, he acts to save them again. And he raises up Gideon. A lot of us are very familiar with Gideon. Gideon's a well-known person. We know his discernment by fleece technique. We know of his ridiculously small 300-man army, in which he fights and defeats 135,000 Midianites, God wins a great victory through 300 men with torches. We know the details of those stories are in chapter 7 and chapter 8, but our focus this morning is on the aftermath, the rest of the story, so to speak, and how it continues to point us forward, building our awareness for the need of another type of ruler, one greater even than Gideon. And Gideon appears in the Hebrews chapter 11 Hall of Faith. He's one of those who became strong from weakness and became mighty in war and isn't good enough. We need someone else, another ruler, one greater than Gideon. Read the whole story of Gideon and what we take away from it. And Here's my main point for this morning. God must provide a ruler to satisfy and secure us in his presence. We can't find one. We can't make one. God must provide one. God must give us a ruler who is able to satisfy us and to secure us in the presence of God. One who can do that successfully. That's what we're working towards this morning. Let me read the text. Judges chapter 8, verses 22 to 35. Beginning in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, 
For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Another name for Gideon. Now, Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Ephesrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Judges 8. I'm going to make two observations to unpack this. The first one from the text begins well but ends poorly. Let me put it like this. We cannot control and dictate the presence and blessing of God. We cannot control and dictate the presence and blessing of God. We need it, but God must give it. We don't make it happen. Any attempt to make it happen always ends in idolatry and ends up destroying the relationship that we're trying to secure. Starting in verse 22, we see the continuation of what is overall a God-honoring attitude in Gideon. Overall, Gideon does pretty well throughout this story. Not perfect, but pretty well. And so coming out of the great victory of Midian, the people of Israel say, be our ruler. They don't use the word king, but that's what they have in mind because they're looking at generational secession. You, your son, and your grandson, which is totally different than how the judges have worked for hundreds of years. The judges have been essentially a one-and-done sort of deal. God raises up from nowhere a judge, and when that judge dies, that's the end of it. But they, they don't like that. It's a little too tenuous. They want a lineage of descent so that we can always know who's going to be the next guy. So, Gideon, you do it. God's used you to deliver us. We know that that's worked well, so let's go with that. We don't want to go back to that nebulous, unknown, somebody coming out of nowhere sort of situation. Do you hear in that the desire to take control? They, they want the, 
what that judge provides, what the ruler provides. He provides the security and the prosperity of the land, and they have come up with a way that they can make that happen. Pick a strong man, a good one. A guy with 70 sons. He's got a ready-made army. He's got 70 sons. Let's make him in charge. Trying to take control of that. But God has a different plan. Through Gideon, he says, no. Gideon rejects that. I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Keyword there, rule. God is ruler. That's the high point of the whole book. And it goes downhill from there. I'm not going to rule over you. We have one ruler. It is the Lord. But tell you what, from right there, we're moving downhill. Tell you what, I have an idea. Why don't you guys bring me all of the golden earrings and let's redo the golden calf? That's what it is. Bring all the golden earrings and the special cloth, the, the purple garments are mentioned there. And so they say, sure, and they, and they bring it in verse 27. For a sensitive reader, verse 27 is, is a punch in the gut. Such an understated way of introducing a tragedy. And Gideon made an ephod with the gold and the purple cloth and put it in his city, in Ophrah. It's just a sentence, but we need to understand what that sentence is about. An, an ephod was an article of clothing. Perhaps think of it, this, this works for me at least, perhaps think of it like football shoulder pads that go all the way down to the waist. So it's kind of something big and bulky on the top, and it goes all the way down to the waist. And, and it was a garment worn by priests. It was a priestly garment. And priests would sometimes wear just linen ephods, just cloth to signify that they were priests set aside to the, to the service of the Lord. But through Moses, God had made, God had given direction to make one particular ephod out of gold and precious, including purple fabric. And on the shoulders, there were two black stones on, on which the names of the tribes of Israel were, were in, engraved. And the high priest wore that ephod, that gold ephod, bearing the names of Israel into the presence of God when he would offer sacrifice or lift up petition and prayer. He carries Israel into the presence of God with this ephod. And then God responds and cleanses them of sin and fellowship is created. He hears their prayers and answers it. That's what the ephod's doing. It's a, it's a connector. People and God. A connector. And we look at 1 Samuel, we see how David uses that a couple times. He calls the high priest, bring the ephod. Let me come and pray with the ephod and ask God what we should do. And there in the presence of God, God responds. So don't miss what's going on here. Gideon says, the Lord is our ruler. But I have a plan as to how we can assure access to him at my place. Now, I, I know, they know, 
God has told us where to go meet him, and God has made another ephod that the high priest in the line of, of Levi and Aaron is supposed to wear. We know that, but I have, a, I have a better idea how we can assure access to God over at my place. God's the ruler. And Israel whored after it there, and it became a stumbling block for him. That's a, that's a tough word. Hard to even kind of say that in public. Hoard. It's in this passage twice. Down below, clearly referring to idols. Here, referring to something that they're doing to pursue God. Same thing, though. It's a, a very strong word for saying, gave their illegitimate love to. Gave their hearts to when they shouldn't have. Because the focus is the ephod, not God. The focus is the control and the guarantee of, if I have this thing, then I can get God where and when and how I want Him. At my place, on demand. Not the sanctuary. Through the priests and the sacrifices. Now, I would venture that none of us have ever even seen an ephod, let alone have one at home in your den. So don't miss the point here in in this detail of this particular ancient device. The issue here before us, the issue that God is raising before us, is that if the Lord is to be ruler... He is to be free. Free to dictate when and where and how He is accessed. And when and where and how He responds to us. And when and where and how His blessing is poured out and His security is given. He decides that. And any venture on our part, we just don't do well with that, but any venture on our part that seeks to say, yeah, but I have an idea as to how to make this so, and what it should be like, and where and when, it destroys the whole thing. Because of what it is, it is us elevating ourselves. That's what's always going on in idolatry. Do you realize? In in idolatry, which is what this language is about, that's the whole this language of whoring. In idolatry, what is always going on is people setting themselves up above the thing they worship. Saying, I bow down to you, but I've decided how and when and where to bow down to you. I'm in charge. That destroys relationship with God. It ruins the whole thing because He is not that kind of God. Now, it, this, is, this is right the place where all kinds of false religions start. And we could point some fingers at people who say, yes, I'm pursuing God, but I'm going to do Him in my own way. I'm going to set up my own religion in my own place to go worship, and I'm going to build my own temple, and I'm going to... We could point fingers at that. 
But it might be more helpful for us to think about ourselves and to stop and think, brothers and sisters, commonly we want a genie who will come out when we rub the bottle and will do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. Commonly we want that and we do not do well with no or wait. We don't do well with how long, Lord? (sighs) Friends, what this I want to express this to you without without hammering you, and I struggle with that, I know, without hammering you, but extremely clearly. We are not in charge. He is. And He determines the times and places in which we live, and the ways in which we are to approach Him. He determines. And any sort of language about, yes, I will pursue the God of the Bible in my way, is idolatry, even though it has tacked onto it the God of the Bible piece. So there's something here that should put us in our place But then also there is something that should be, Christian, remarkably delightful to you in that he has determined that he can be reached. What we're grasping for here with our our ephod, if you will, what we're grasping for here is to assure the presence of God right here, right now. He's provided that, has he not? The presence of God right here, right now. How? In Christ, who goes with you wherever you go, He has provided His presence to you right here, right now. But, here's the thing, because it could sound like, if I say that, it could sound like, well then I've got Him and I'm good, why are we even talking about this? Because, while He walks with you, lives in even in you, the same attitude of control ruins it. I, I rub shoulders with lots of Christians. Probably because of the nature of my job, I rub lots of, lots of shoulders of Christians, lots of shoulders who are frustrated about stuff. And I tell you, I meet Christians who, yes, the Lord, amen. As long as we have this doctrine. Yes, the Lord, amen. As long as we pursue this program, and our church has to have this program because this is how God works. You think this, this is, it almost sounds, as I'm saying, it almost sounds a little silly. It's true. Yes, yes, the Lord, absolutely. As long as he will work in this way and bring this outcome in, in our nation, in our political environment, in our church life, as long as, yes, then, then 
Amen. The Lord. He has provided to you, Christian, access into His very presence, but the only way that you can experience that, and the only way, and this is, this, this is two-edged here, it's, it's, it's cutting, it's saying it's the only way, and it's also promising that there's a way. The only way that you can experience that is to let go of your agenda, to let go of your control of the desire to make it be thus and so. You let go of that, and you'll find God. The people here, they could have gone to Shiloh, where the real ephod was, and sought God. They could have done what he said, walk with me humbly, submissively, in righteousness, and I will rule over you in security and prosperity will rain down. And they said, well, we want those things, but in our own way. Do you want what God gives in your own way? Are you seeking to control Him? Do you have this kind of hold on Him? We can't do that. It inevitably destroys it. God wants to come near to you and has made a way in Jesus to have have daily moment by moment communion with you but it only happens if you let go of the desire to make it your way please let go of that come to him Christ Christ wants you to come to him but come to him Open-armed, submitted, surrendered. You, Lord, in your place, in your time, and in your way. You. We cannot, we must not, but we, we cannot control, dictate, I might add manipulate, access to the presence of God but we can't enjoy it. Please enjoy it by letting go of your way and your agenda. The first first point we see here is that we have to let God be God and to dictate how He is accessed and how he leads, and how he rules. And the second point, maybe to use a similar language, is that we have to remember God. Which takes me to the second observation. So, God is merciful, and God delivers them, and it says they had rest for a whole generation And then things changed. So the second point, we need a ruler who can secure for us the memory of our saving God. Who can secure for us the memory of our saving God. Otherwise we forget and we drift. 
See how this problem arises in verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel picked up right where they left off. They turned again, and they whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. To which the reader should respond, man, that did not take long. That was immediately. Right after Gideon dies, whoop, right back. This is another example of the whole pattern we see in this book. Under pressure and under fear, the people turn to God and cry out to Him. But by nature, once the physical or the, the cultural or societal constraint is, is removed, right back. It right back after some other God. Return to a habit of sin. That's how our flesh works. That's what we are like by nature. We are wired to chase after our ways, our needs in ways that are most appealing to us, that make the most sense to us. And as soon as you remove the restraint, you find out what we naturally are as we run back to it and chase again the gods of the nations. And the answer to that, the solution to that, the Christian solution to that, is not to create more restraint. It's not to build higher walls. The Christian answer to that, in the words of Thomas Chalmers, is the expulsive power of a superior affection. The expulsive power of a superior affection, a greater affection, and its power to expel. It's the title of an old sermon preached by this man. It has the power, a greater affection has the power to expel, to, to kick out, to chase away inferior affections. We will not whore after another if we are smitten and enthralled with the one that we have. That's also how we work. Superior affection drives out inferior ones. And so what we are in search of actually, though we don't know it really, we are in search of a superior affection, always looking for the greatest lover. And it seems to us that what's presented to us is the things offered in the world. But God has done another marvelous thing in that He has presented to us not something just that we must do. I was saying that He dictates how and when and where. But not just that we must in this way, in this manner, pursue Him. But He has presented to us one who is lovely. One who is a delight. And He sets Him in front of us and then gloriously acts in mercy to open your blind eyes to see Him. Not something that you've done, not something that you can do, but something that He graciously, kindly has done to you. He sets in front of you Christ, who is delightful above all things, the greatest of all possible lovers. Consider Christ. 
God the Father has everything in all of the creation, every thought conceivable. He has everything to meditate on and to fill his heart with. And he says, my delight is in him. This one is the fullness of the Father's joy. And he puts that one before you. There is nothing else here. Nothing else offered to you not by, the, by the world or even nothing else by God offered to you as precious and as beautiful as Jesus. And we see this most pointedly in what He has done to redeem you. This is God's argument made all throughout the Bible. It's even in this passage. Look how it says, verse 34, They did not remember the Lord their God. Who's that? who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. God had proven who He was to them by saying, look, I deliver you from that one, and 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 from that one. On every side, in mercy, though you do not deserve it, I am a deliverer to you. How gracious and kind and merciful to you I am. And they forgot Him. But Christian, he sings that over your life. I am the one who's delivered you from every enemy all around you, even the enemy within you. Do you realize? Christian, do you realize? Born by nature an enemy. He has made you His friend. He has reached down and come into this world, into your life, to make you His friend and change your forever. That should not be. Consider it. Maybe you've never heard it before, but consider it again for most of us. God looked down at a world enraged at Him and running. And he said, in mercy, I will act to save you. To save you. I'm going to chase you down and save you. He sends God the Son to come to earth, to go to the cross, to take on himself the sin due to you. The the sin penalty due to you. All in mercy. All in great mercy. Do you know this story? It is your story. Maybe. Maybe it isn't. I don't know everybody here. But what I'm talking to you about now could be your story if you would trust this cross, this Jesus crucified alone. Place faith in Him alone to pay for your sin. It can become your story too. But most of us here, it's your story. He's acted to save you. To change everything for you. He's the God who has delivered you from the hand of all your enemies on every side, including your greatest enemy, sin and death. And right now, what makes you 
different than these folks. So he doesn't just speak that truth to you or write it down in a book and put it in front of you, but he has also placed his spirit inside of you to bring the truth forward in the moments of need. When are those moments of need? Every time you start to forget. Every time you start to drift. Every time you find yourself a father, husband, coming home from work after a day in which it has been frustrating to say the least. Not just the people were mean, but the money didn't go well, whatever your business is. The money didn't go well and the people weren't good about it. And you're going home and you begin to think, and I have kids at home who sometimes are a challenge for me. Now, maybe not your kids, not my kids either. But I'm anticipating that I'm going to get home and they're going to be at each other and at me. I hate that. And I'm really, as I'm sitting in the car driving home, I'm really feeling the pressure of what about my job and what about those people and now I'm going to go home to what? More. May the Spirit of God in that moment, and may you develop a habit of asking Him in that moment to bring forward, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from every enemy all around you. I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from every enemy all around you. Well, not the guys at work. They're still there. How does this relate? How, how does it relate? Do you know? Do you understand how it relates? It relates in two different ways. It relates, one, in that it casts a whole different perspective on your life. I say this before, I've said this before. What kind of problems do you have? By comparison, he has addressed the issue in your life. He has removed off of you the wrath of God. Who cares about your boss? It changes your perspective. And it also, so more than just changing your perspective, it, it also brings forward to you truth that actually changes you. So you actually are becoming different by this. Here's what I mean by that. As this truth comes into your mind, it doesn't just give you more truth about a different perspective. It actually works into you by a miracle of God. A heart that is less focused on things here and more focused on God himself. A heart that more than just 
I should be or I can be actually is more inclined this way. And as I am more fixed on, not completely, that doesn't happen until we go to heaven, more fixed on, more looking at, more focused on, more thinking about, I'm finding a superior affection. I'm developing another love relationship. And in this love relationship, I find I have what I need. I am who I need to be. I'm full. I'm complete in this relationship. And I can turn then and give to these. I can give and bless having been blessed. I can love having been loved. Because there's a change that happens. I'm not just talking about information. I'm talking about a miracle here. A miracle that happens in you as God the Spirit works on you. You become different. A Christian word we throw on that is sanctification. You become different. But, that will not happen until you let go of yourself and your agenda and the way things should be and the way God should act. Which takes us back to the first point. God is free. God has to be approached humbly, asking, not proudly telling. But marvelous thing, marvelous thing, Christian. What we need is a ruler who will secure in us the presence of God and who will satisfy us. And God has delivered him to us in Jesus. So please, go to him and trust him. And become very skilled at noticing when your heart's drifting. If this is where God is and relationship with God is over here, notice when you're drifting. Look for it. We are a most blessed people. You have a story. That is eternity changing. It is not, it is not just a collection of facts. We are different people. We are eternal creatures who will live forever with God. All by His merciful intervention in your life. And he wants that story to dominate all of the other stories that are told to you in this world. He's given you his spirit to make that possible. Cry out to him, Spirit of God, have your way. Speak the truth to me. Change me with it. For your joy. 
That we would be a people. That we would be a people who walk delighted. Delighted with Him. It can be. He has made it possible. Surrender to Him. We are in need of, we are searching for a ruler who will secure us and satisfy us. And God has provided that in Christ. So come to Him letting go of all control. Come to Him letting go of all control. Come to Him asking Him, speak the story to me. Remind me of your great superior affection. He will do that. He will change you. He will fasten you to Himself. That's what I'm going to pray for right now, to happen in us and in you. So pray with me. God Almighty, I preach about these things and and I'm... I'm thinking right now of my inability to make it so. It's kind of part of the deal. I can't make it so. I can't make it so in my own life. I can't make it so in the church's life, in individual Christians' lives here. But we come to you in the Spirit, through Christ, to you, Father, and ask you to change us. We ask you to make us a people surrendered. We ask you to make us a people who sing in our minds, in our hearts, the story about how you have saved us, what you have made for us, And therefore are not tempted to wander after others. Make that so, Father, please. I need it in my life. And all my friends here need it. It's what makes a church sweet, happy, and holy, light, in the best way, joyful. So would you move, Spirit of God, through this place and where there are some here holding on, would you help them to let go? Would you convict them and show them their their security in you and the fact that they don't need to hold on? Where there are some who are frightened by their inability to control you, assure them that you know the moment's the ins and outs of their lives, and that you have it. Where there are some of you who have drifted and forget you, remind them, Lord, of your goodness. Sing to them of Christ crucified for their sin. Woo them back. Make us a people, Father. Make us a people who are focused on you surrendered to you, happy in you. 
Our eyes are on you. You must do it. We can't. So we ask you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.